0: Welcome to Techka Masala, a spicy tech news show from the Indicast family. Uh, What we'll be doing on this podcast is we'll be talking about a lot of technology, internet related stuff, uh, not just coming out of India but all over the world. And uh, we'll be soon having more contributors to this show. It's not just going to be me alone because that's not what we do at Indicast. A lot of things have uh, have been written about how the VC arena is heating up in India with uh, and and are funding all the technology companies in India. So what we thought would be apt to start off this uh, series of show is that have a VC with us and talk to us about what is happening in India exactly. So Avneesh Bajaj just agreed to chat with us about how the whole VC thing works and um, answered a few very crucial questions that entrepreneurs usually have. So. It was me, Abhishek, and Avnish Bajaj in his office at Worli in Mumbai. Here's the interview for you. It's a bit long. It's about forty minutes, but you'll get some really nice content from here. So go ahead, listen to the interview. We have Avnish Bajaj. Hi, hi, hello, everyone. So who is uh, who? I guess needs no inter- introduction. Right?
1: Yeah, an erstwhile entrepreneur, now making entrepreneurs uh, through his. Uh, uh, company matrix partners my pleasure to be here
0: it's great to have you because and it's it was great as to how quickly you responded mm-hmm. and agreed to do all this uh, you know we when we wrote yeah. an email to you we were a bit uh, skeptical as to how quickly we will be able to <laughs> i'm an internet entrepreneur so everything has to move at the speed of life great <laughs> okay so let's yeah. get
1: directly into it uh, all right uh, you know we read your profile on matrix partners that you were first working with apple then you moved on to goldman sachs as an investment banker and also worked as a management consultant with McKinsey. So the first question that we thought of is that during that time, you were young. Uh, what were you thinking when you moved on from to different industries altogether? Well, first of all, I'm still young. But okay. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I was just about to point that ah, out. You okay. don't need okay. to say <laughs> that. <I don't> <laughs>
2: uh,
3: but no, no, Oops. I understand that. So yeah. uh, look, the thinking was that let me back up for a moment. I think if you look at the profile of most people who end up being entrepreneurs, mm-hmm. what you'll find is that they typically have a level of curiosity uh, which exceeds a normal uh, average person on the bell curve, which typically translates into the fact that if they're in a in a particular activity, they tend to get bored uh, right. and they want to explore something else. Now, there are two types of such people. There are the people who, who end up, exploring, 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 finding their final calling mm-hmm. and then putting their energy fully behind that. And then there are people who keep exploring all their life, and who sometimes yeah. end up as the more creative people, but also sometimes uh, not really finding uh, their so-called landing spot. So for me, it was, I started off as a software engineer. My undergraduate degree was in computer science. My master's was in computer science. So Apple was basically a very logical uh, progression path. Uh, But the reason I chose Apple as opposed to some of the other jobs I could have taken was that I always, right from the beginning, knew that I would be more of a business person than as a technologist. Mm -hmm. Apple offered me that opportunity. Uh, Their consumer products always excited me. You're Mm -hmm. using uh, uh, one of them. Yeah. Um, and uh, and some of the other job opportunities I had would be end up being more R&D focused mm-hmm. and end up being more along the lines of deep technology so that's how I got into Apple now within a year, two year and a half at Apple I went to my manager and said look I'm fundamentally underutilized
2: okay.
3: um, you know I'm available if you want to uh, utilize uh, my abilities whatever your assessment is if you want to utilize them further and at the one of the beauties of, I would say, US company culture, which now has started to happen here, is that typically the bar of your uh, how much you can rise is set by you, not by your company, yeah. um, which in India didn't used to be like that, you know, it mm-hmm. used to depend on seniority and all of that. Now it's just, all a meritocracy. Yeah. So he said, you know what, we are doing this big project with SAP in Germany, why don't you go manage that project? And for mm-hmm. a software developer to suddenly have to do that, it was quite a big, big stretch. But I ended up spending about a year and a half there and realized that that was also great for a year and a half, but Mm -hmm. not stimulating enough. So that's when I applied to HBS and a few other schools. Got into HBS, decided to do my MBA, uh, got an offer to do McKinsey high-tech consulting. Mm -hmm. And I thought, look, everybody, you know, a lot of people from these schools end up at McKinsey, so let me see what it's like. So it was a fabulous training ground. But I also realized that strategy consulting stopped uh, way early in the uh, life cycle of a business than what I was comfortable with. So you would give advice and then you would walk away. Okay. And you would never be accountable for the results. So I said, okay, this is an interesting exposure, but mm-hmm. not not something I want to do for my life uh, going forward. So let me try something completely different, which may, which you know, I have no background in, which was investment banking. And there the learning curve was very steep. Um, I really enjoyed it. First time I had to deal with uh you know, merger documents, IPO documents, financial mm-hmm. models, uh interaction with CEOs of uh, really, really big companies. You we did the Infoseek acquisition for Disney, so you know, yeah. literally sitting in a room with Michael Eisner and Tom Stags okay. who was the CFO right. and just three, four people. So you it builds a lot of confidence. Mm-hmm. And partially even Howard builds that confidence because you know in your classroom you have all these big guys coming yeah. through all the time and talking about their experience. So that was great. During that time, eBay actually went public, Mm -hmm. uh, and Goldman Sachs took them public. Okay. So as a result, we had gone through the prospectus, looked at the business model. I thought it was a fabulous business model, Um, and let me spend a minute on on that. And the reason I thought it was so uh, different was, if you look at Yahoo, it's essentially a newspaper on the internet. Uh, It's a more convenient form of getting information. Mm. If you look at Google, it's more it's it's essentially a library on the internet. Hmm. Although it's far more convenient than using a library for influential. If you look at Amazon, it's essentially a bookstore on the internet. Yes. So point being is all internet businesses, but they all already have offline counterparts. Hmm. eBay cannot exist offline. It cannot yes. exist. You cannot have two people in far flung places trading without the hmm. internet. So when you when you see that dynamic, you realize that Internet is so core to it, which means it it is going to be much more of a sustainable differentiator for the business. So that's what really struck me about that business. And then, uh, you know, I had a friend from Harvard with me at uh, in New York, and we talked about stuff. Both of us wanted to be entrepreneurs. We realized he was at BCG, I was at Goldman, had uh, learned a lot, but was ready to take the next step. So India was more coming and starting Bazi in India was more looking at it from an opportunity standpoint Mm -hmm. and seeing that the U.S. was saturated as a market. India was untapped as a market. And so, therefore, the future opportunity would be here. So, So
1: did you you decide to uh, replicate what was uh, there with eBay? Because many companies normally, when they try to do something that you did, they don't get it right. So, there had to be something that uh, you did was different in an Indian marketplace than uh, what eBay was doing there.
3: So, so... When we looked at that model, we understood that in the US, payment systems, uh, courier companies, shipping systems, sophistication of the internet, trust and safety, all of mm-hmm. it was orders of magnitude higher than India, right. including internet penetration, frankly. Mm-hmm. But at the same, so we realized that this model would not just, you know, you, you, have the, uh, you have the danger of things getting lost in translation, right? Yes. So we came up with our own version of how the model would work, which would be that you would do it do intra-city based trading as opposed to inter-city based trading okay. and right. people would meet in person and exchange goods for cash
2: hmm. and the
3: minute they do that you take away the shipping problem, you take away the payment yes. problem and you take away the trust and safety problem. So that was our unique spin on the model. So first year we followed the original model and then realized that isn't working. So move towards doing some of these. Uh, so yes, more you have to, when you look at a US Me Too model in India, you have to really apply it. Mm-hmm. First, there, there, there have to be two filters. One is, is the model needed in India. Okay. A lot of time people miss that. People miss that that first filter. Mm-hmm. They think that if something is working in the US, it should just work here. Yes. Uh, so first question is, is the customer need in India the same, which for eBay applied, because people would love to trade their goods and services, whatever. Second thing is, even if it is needed, is that particular market going to be large enough? U.S. is a $13 trillion economy. As of yesterday, we are a a $1 trillion trillion economy. So fundamentally, there are a lot of these niche verticals which are very big in the U.S. which will never be large enough in India. Mm -hmm. So that's the second filter. And then the third filter is, assuming the first two are true, Mm
2: -hmm.
3: how will you actually execute this in India that will work? Uh, So these are the things you have to apply. And that's where a lot of the the me too sometimes...
0: Lose that with it. yeah. it's, it's funny that you actually mentioned that people met offline because that is what I did when I sold my, my guitar, guitar yeah, I, yeah, I, I met the person at the other station we hmm. will uh, remember platform number one <laughs> he handed me the money and I gave him the guitar so it's yeah, funny yeah, that yeah, you, yeah. you just and said. I think
3: that's actually what happens still a lot except that that cannot be the strategy of the company so when I
0: hmm.
3: moved my when I bought a new place and I moved from my old house I have sold all my furniture on bazi. Mm-hmm. Okay. and my sofa set which the a large sofa set bulky mm-hmm. one got bought by a ch- guy in Chennai mm-hmm. the guy's uncle came over here in, in Bombay to visit our house mm-hmm. look at it,
2: okay. check it out. pick
3: it up okay. and put it in a train get it packed and put it in a train and give me a check first right? okay. so ultimately the actual exchange happened in a in, yeah. a, in, a, in a in a personal setting but the trading happened between Bombay and Chennai Yes. Right. so right. those are the angles
0: that you have to did, did the sofa set go for any higher than because it's Avnish's sofa set? No. <laughs> at that time, <laughs> <also> <laughs> <laughs>
3: first of all, my uh, my identity on the site was always something that people would know uh-huh. uh, okay. who I was. But even then, I mean, I, I, at that time we were we were very small. This was like 2002. So okay. Don't know. So,
0: so wo- then, so then, what was the moment when was there a moment, if at all, uh, when you said you know, and you you were. Uh, in B-School, right? When you decided to start Bazi? No, at Goldman Sachs. Okay, mm-hmm. so what was the one point when you said, it's we have to do it now, otherwise it's never going to happen? Was there a moment like that? Or-
3: well, the moment was when I had to get on the plane, but uh, mm-hmm. in reality, see, people and a lot of us in India suffer from this issue. A lot of us—I have a middle-class background. I've been—I have have like you know traditional middle-class values, and one of which, unfortunately, in this country, is risk averseness. We are all all uh, brought up to respect certain educational careers, certain professional paths, and not many deviate from that professional path until very recently. I mean, uh, you know, earlier ten, fifteen years ago, if you said somebody was doing business. Mm That meant that they may have a Kirana shop or a Mm -hmm. trading operation. It wasn't a professional business, right? So keeping that in mind, the barrier to changing the path, mental, psychological barrier is actually very high uh, for, for, I think, for a lot of people. But over a period of time, whether it was being in the Silicon Valley and reading a lot about success of various entrepreneurs, whether it was uh, being at Harvard and getting inspired by a lot of other people. Or at Goldman Sachs, uh, where we used to take a lot of these, you know, uh, 20-something CEO companies right. public. Right. Uh, that mentality started getting changed a little bit. Right. But even then, it was a big challenge. Right. <coughs> so I think the moment really was that uh, I, uh, a friend of mine uh, called Ashish Dhawan from Harvard, he was starting a venture firm in India called Chris Capital. And he was actually moving to India mm-hmm. in mid '99, and at that time I was considering leaving Goldman Sachs and and going and uh, running an internet company in Brazil uh, oh. because they were Goldman's clients mm-hmm. and we had developed a good relationship and they said you know what why don't you come and uh, and do this here mm-hmm. and Rio is a fabulous place I love that <laughs> in America I said you know this is a great place yeah. to do it and in the meantime I've been talking to Ashish Dhawan that you know we may come back to India and do something like like this like Bazi or whatever. And I remember I was on the phone with him once and I said, you know what, this Brazil opportunity is very attractive. Mm -hmm. Uh, These guys are going to give me an apartment in Rio, an apartment in New York. I'm going to shuttle between two great party places. Um, You know, so I think that's what I'm going to do. Okay. And he said, look, you know, there are, he said you have to do what you have to do but let me tell you one thing which, which I think was a very very uh, inspirational as well as accurate statement and his statement was that there are a lot of people who want to achieve a lot in life and want to be super achievers but they are never taking risk yeah. uh, beyond the normal level of risk which is super normal risk so if, if you really want to be a super achiever you will have to pack your bags and take a big risk uh, but let me tell you also something that uh, you know, if you come to India it's very likely that we will back you So that made it easier. Uh, He said, obviously, you'll have to have a good business idea and a good plan and all of that, but it's likely that you fit the profile of someone we would back. So I said, okay. So that was basically it. Uh, So I think he was instrumental uh, in kind of, and he and even my co founder, my co founder had been in India. BCG for three months. Mm-hmm. Okay. And he said that, you know, India is changing. Let's let's we so had a feel, a feel of this place. And he had a little bit more feel because we had come back in 1997 to explore IT services business in India, yeah. India while you we were at Harvard. And uh, at that time, we just felt that it was, you know, A, IT services business for us wasn't very exciting because it was more of a human resources um, management mm-hmm. business. We were both consumer kind of guys. Okay. And the second was the environment body was wasn't very attractive.
1: Were there times? I, I'm sure there would have been that even we felt that uh, I don't know things are not going well. Uh, was it a good idea in the first place? Oh, absolutely, I a mean, number of times. Number okay. of times. I think uh, after the
3: probably 2001 and 2002, we used to literally survive from a board meeting from a company standpoint from a board meeting to board meeting. Business. Okay. I mean, my girlfriend at that time who's now my wife, uh, you know, used to always say when I used to go for a board meeting. Uh-huh. She used to say, so will you have a job when you come back? And I said, I have no idea. And oh. this used to happen every six weeks. I think what made it easier to survive uh, during that time were two or three things. One was, co-founders is fundamentally a good idea. Um, okay. Because you basically, see if you, are, if you are a single founder and even if you have recruited a great management team, we had a great management team, we used to have Two of us and then three, four other people who are very close to us. We were friends, we would, mm. you know, hang out together, work together, all of that. But net, net, they were reporting to us, right? So if I had serious doubts about the business or something, some issue or even a decision, it was going to be very, very painful potentially. I would still think twice before discussing with them because ultimately they are reporting to us. Yes. Uh, but with a co-founder, co-founder. you're basically yeah. able to bounce things off quite a bit. Right. So I think that's one key, key thing second key thing was the business model while india was going through all this downturn and all ebay was going from strength to strength and they were they were expanding internationally they had entered germany they bought a big company germany and and they were doing extremely well so we knew that it is a matter of time mm-hmm. but this business model itself fundamentally works uh, which i think is a very important piece of it because if we had questioned the business model itself and wanted to diversify and this and that, mm-hmm. then then it would have been very difficult. And and a lot of, we had 12 competitors when we launched and a lot of them went uh, offline and did various things. So we, we were able to resist that. I think that was the second important thing. The third important thing was our investors were just incredibly supportive. Okay. Um, so Star TV was the largest investor. Um, James Murdoch uh, had seen how options had done well in Australia. Mm-hmm. So they were really, really strong believers. So that was the third thing. And finally, I think we had a fabulous management team. Uh, we were able to stay focused on the business. While the market was down, it gives you actually an opportunity to consolidate your business. Right nothing. When, when nothing is going well outside, it really doesn't matter how many users are coming to the side. You have the time to actually fix everything mm-hmm. so that when the market picks up, you have a great yeah. product. Right. Uh, that's what we did, which also meant we acquired our largest competitor. It was called Bidabai. Okay. Um, we you, their technology was superior to us. We uh, merged their technology into ours. So when the market actually picked up, we were ready. You were ready, right? So I think that was the key. Mm. So what was the
0: first
3: thing that you sold on
0: Basi? Because
3: uh, eBay sold uh, uh, a printer, right? No. Yeah, oh, is that a some of them are myths, some, okay. some of them are stories. <laughs> yeah. I don't know what they actually sold. What did I first sell on Bajit? That's a good question. I don't mm-hmm. even remember now. I should. Yes, I sold my um, Baron's GMAT guide. Oh, no, really? Okay. Yeah, that was the first thing I sold. Um, because at that time when we had launched, this is way back in 2000, books mm-hmm. was our largest category. Mm-hmm. Okay. So I remember selling that and sold some CDs and this and that. So, and, mm-hmm. and that was the other thing. In fact, on Bazi until even at the time we were acquired by eBay, there's a feedback rating system, right? Mm. So I had by far the largest amount of feedback on the site. Mm-hmm. Uh, okay. from, and and that is key because that was the other reason we succeeded because we used to use our own product. Yes. Right? And by using our own product, we mm-hmm. knew therefore what all the issues with the product were. Uh, if I bought something and it arrived in a broken uh, mm-hmm. state, I knew that I would be really pissed off, so yes. we better have a way that, mm-hmm. that if that happened to somebody, we should have something in place. And so that's how we launched a protection program. Mm-hmm. I ordered something from, uh, I forget what it was, uh, but it arrived in a broken state. Okay. And, and I remember thinking now, as a buyer i'm I'm basically screwed yeah. right yes. so yes. what should what should be done <laughs> right
0: and so that's how we launched a buyer protection program so, so then um, so what where, where were you when you received the call from eBay? were you in the office and uh, <laughs> how tell, it, all tell, that tell
1: us that moment when you would have called Suvir and said eBay whatever, it, yeah. Yeah.
3: It, it actually doesn't work like that I'd like to tell you to tell you a more interesting story, and then we'll talk about the eBay angle. After we had raised, when we had just started and after we had raised our two rounds of funding, I got a call on my mobile phone and, and this gentleman said, hi, my name is Gary Walworth. I'm based uh, out of Hong Kong. I'm an executive vice president in News Corp. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, we have heard good things about you guys. We are looking to invest in certain internet companies. We would like to meet you. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. I said, uh, Absolutely. Sure. And he said, you know, Rupert Murdoch is focused on this market, whatever, whatever. So okay. that was very exciting. Mm-hmm. So I said, uh, sure, Gary, you know, when do you want me? So he said, I'm standing in your reception. Okay. So that was the level of aggression. Uh-huh. He had actually reached our office. Mm-hmm. Right. And uh, there was nobody at the reception. He may have been outside the main door. And so he called on the mobile saying, I'm there. And that's how <laughs> that conversation started. Okay. Uh, and that was one of the key uh, ingredients of our, of our future success. In terms of eBay, actually, it was very different. eBay, <coughs> I have known eBay for a very long time through various connections. So I think first time I actually met them was in 2002, and it was really you know more of a cross pollination and learning from each other and stuff like that. A friend of mine uh, from Howard actually had started a company called EachNet in China, which was mm-hmm. the largest uh, internet site there. Another HBS guy had started Dere Mate in Latin America, which was the largest auction okay. site there. So there was actually an huh? ecosystem of all right. of us, and we would actually visit each other and try to get learnings from each other's markets. Mm-hmm. And I think through one of these, I got introduced to eBay, mm-hmm. and eBay said, "Look, we don't know if we'll ever come to India, mm-hmm. but uh, you know, let's exchange learnings from each other." Okay. And he said fine, and that's how those conversations had originally started. And then once the market had picked up, I think uh, they just sent us an uh, email or somebody introduced us saying, you know, they want to see what are the possibilities in this market and they're trying to learn about this market. And from that point till the point we sold uh, must have been like a year and a half. So it was a very long uh, uh, courtship period because we weren't sure if we wanted to sell.
2: Um,
3: They weren't sure if they wanted to build or buy, Mm -hmm. uh, which is a question for most of these companies
2: when they're looking at it.
1: But uh, that's exactly the point. When, as you said, one and a half years is what the time was. Uh, how did you, at that point of time, value the company? Which, because you have to sell it obviously, there has to be a value. Yeah. And interestingly, we read about how Sabir Bhatia was first offered 100 million, and then we know he went on to sell it four times that value. Yeah. So, what are the kind of negotiations, or how much of it is on gut, and what what? How actually in
3: internet companies most of it is is very hard to put our science to it so if you look at youtube how's it at 1.6 billion right yeah. uh, exactly. if you look at MySpace when it was bought when it was i think they paid 560 million. Million. Yes. Uh, today it looks like a steal at, uh, at that time it looked like a ridiculous price right so it's very hard to figure these things out mm-hmm. so for us it was a question of uh, f- you know looking at what generated decent returns for our investors Okay. So the minimum threshold was based on what would generate decent returns. Typically these things also end up being a competitive process. So mm-hmm. we had, uh, you know, we have we were approached by a lot of uh, comp- internet companies worldwide, Indian, as well as from, um, uh, by various private equity and strategic in- and uh, financial investors. So once you have something like that, you get a sense of what the market, it's typically mm-hmm you know the price of most things mm-hmm. which are uh, sometimes not as scientific to, to value yeah. right. are driven by you know a trade that actually happens you know what are you willing to sell at and what is someone like beauty lies in the eye of the beholder. it's almost mm-hmm. like the art market um, so that was really the thing and yes the price uh, of what we wanted versus what they were going to offer versus where we ended up were very different numbers
2: okay so <laughs>
0: They, that's exactly yeah. it, right? Yeah. So how do you know when to back off? Is there any, yeah. uh, you know? Yeah, I would say
3: pushing. 99% of the deals that happen in the world happen after the deal breaks off. Oh, oh yeah. okay. And that's what happened. Okay. So, so you have to, you have to know when you are willing to walk away. Hmm. And we walked away, and they walked away, and, uh, and we knew what the gap was, and then both sides thought about it, and then oh. they reached out a little, and we reached out a little. <laughs> okay. Something. But you have to, be, to do a deal. you have to be willing to walk away.
2: Okay. Otherwise,
3: exactly. you'll never, never know. If you're not willing to walk away, I think fundamentally, just look at it as a human psychology standpoint. And I see this even with, you know, when I see people bargaining with vegetable vendors. Right. So if the guy says 20 rupees a kilo, hmm. you say 15, and he says, okay, then you feel you left something on the table. Right. Yes. Right? yes yeah. It's only when you say 10, mm-hmm. and he says, I won't give it, and you walk away, and both of you do it at 12, that you both think you got the best yes. deed possible. Uh That's how all negotiations work. It's no different from a vegetable market.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Okay, so uh, moving on to the post-Basi, if you will. You know, you made a transition from an entrepreneur to uh, a venture capitalist now. And this question is actually a a follow-up question to the previous one. Is that, uh, and it is one of the questions that we faced at Thai. You know, uh, yeah. someone who we knew asked us that, okay, if I'm ready to offer you what you want right now, you know, so many crores or whatever, what percent of stake are you uh, ready to part with? Yeah. And um, we frankly didn't have any answer to that. Yeah. Okay. So is there, how how does an, uh, an entrepreneur come up with uh, that sort of a figure, you know, okay, I'm ready to give up 33% or 50%. Is there any sort of a...
3: Actually, it should normally be the other way around. Like I said, the, the, the pricing when we look at deals, we would like to, we would be deluding ourselves if we thought that we could pay a price which would be less than what someone else in the market would pay. Okay. 10, 15% discounts, yes, we get there. Maybe because the entrepreneur values our relationship. There may be five other you know reasons. But 30% discount, very unlikely. So typically, as an entrepreneur, the price has to be set by the market, which means that you have to go meet five, six different people Mm -hmm. and ask them what they are willing to pay. And normally, whenever an entrepreneur uh, is asked the question, what are you willing to part with? The answer should be, you are much more sophisticated as as an investor. You should tell us Mm -hmm. what you are willing to pay because you have a sense of the opportunity. We we want to part with as little as possible. That should be the answer. Okay. So that's one perspective. Now assuming that you do get multiple offers and and all of that, typically like I said, although VCs are often derided for not having any methodology or whatever, you will find that very seldomly there will be an investment opportunity where one VC will be offering a disproportionately higher price or Mm -hmm. a disproportionately lower price. Usually, there's a clustering in at fifteen to 20% range. Okay. Usually, that's the situation because everybody uses similar methodology. Mm. For me, the answer would, would have been, you know, like if you're doing IndyCast, I would say, okay, yeah, how big can this market be uh, in 5-10 years? If it, you know, it may be, uh, I don't know, how in terms of usage, right? India doesn't have iPods, so what is going to be the medium? Is it going to be internet? Is it going to be mobile? Um, and it, depending on how big the market can be, what is its revenue potential? And therefore, what is its potential from a value creation perspective? Mm-hmm. And therefore, if given the amount of risk I'm taking, if I want to make 10 times my money or 15 times my money, and if it's uh, going to be worth 100 million, I must and I'm putting in 2 million now, I must own 20 or 25 percent mm-hmm. at the time it exits. Okay. Right? Because then I get 10 times mm-hmm. my money or 20, 15 times my money. And if I'm putting in 2 million now, I know that there will be future dilution of 25-30%. So for 2 million now, I should own about 30-35%. That's how VCs typically think. Uh, So it's actually more valuation as an outcome of an end state. And backing into, therefore, the present state. Mm-hmm. Uh, not any scientific sit down okay. and value that's okay. based on eyeballs. That used to happen in yeah.
1: 98, 99, but okay. that's just So, do you think that is how uh, Google got funded? Because they didn't have a revenue model to start with, neither did probably. You See, did. actually, in series A funding, the
3: uh, answers are very simple. Mm-hmm. You look at, you have to first believe that it can be a very large market. Okay. okay, If you believe that it can be a very large market, you have to believe that the right team is. Chasing that market, and we'll be able to address that in a sustainable, differentiated fashion. All of that stuff. If you believe the first two things, the valuation at a Series A round is anywhere between two million dollars pre-money uh-huh. to six, seven million dollars pre-money, maximum eight million dollars pre-money, depending on the quality of the team and the quality of the opportunity. Okay. It's not very really much beyond that. There is like a median of Series B, similar. Again, if if this, and this is especially relevant for non-consumer tech businesses, right? Uh-huh. Which, are, which are right now just in a product development cycle. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So how do you value consumer, consumer adoption anyway, yes. right? There, because there is none. So very standard benchmark, single digit for series A, low double, low double digit for series B, and series C is typically based on traction. Okay. Where then you have some sense of what, then you're able to quantify the size of the market opportunity and able to back it.
1: You make everything sound very simple. <laughs> I mean, you're talking we are talking about millions of dollars here, so it is actually. Yeah. The,
3: the, you know, people when they when they're in the venture business, when I started in the venture business, having an entrepreneurial background, I was so uh, focused on valuations, mm-hmm. uh-huh. and valuations are completely irrelevant in this business. Oh. At Series A, Series B, valuations are extremely relevant in private equity and growth businesses because there you're investing in a real business, hmm. and actually in India. That's where the valuations have, even in internet and mobile actually, but that's where the, the, the hype has gotten ahead of the reality, so the valuations have been driven up uh, okay. ridiculously. But there you have some science you can apply. In early stage opportunities, you're really betting on a team and an opportunity. There's yeah. not that much science. And by the way, VCs don't want to own more than, you know, 50% of the business anyway, because if they own too much, Uh Then the management team is not going to be incented. You're you're backing the people who are themselves not going to be incented to make a big uh, business out of it. What's the point?
0: Yeah. See the logic there. Yes. Uh, One of the things that we have experienced is that a lot of uh, people are expecting a tried and tested model. Yeah. And uh, they say we don't know if this business, if for example, if podcasting has enough, you know, a market in India. But then, uh, I personally as um, uh, an entrepreneur, I am feeling that uh, nobody is uh, right now ready to bet yeah. on yeah. Wh- what I am saying and can't s- visualize what I am saying. Yeah. Uh, so I think
3: VCs are actually fairly risk-averse, although it is <laughs> a business of taking risk. But uh, first of all, let me talk about Matrix itself. We are actually not, we are investing more in consumer services businesses. Mm-hmm. Right? So, there. The, the innovation we are looking at you know we have invested in Yochana we find mm-hmm. that innovative mm-hmm. because it's, a, it's an interesting concept now is there risk absolutely uh, if we look at uh, whether that business can, uh, can make a profit in the high inflationary environment where input costs are going up real estate rent yeah. it's a serious yeah. question yeah. Um, and, and therefore we are back to team that we think can figure it out right? in the internet mobile let's take podcasting as an example. You know when people, there, there is a reason why people uh, are not willing to potentially take that risk and there is a logical reason. The logical reason is people, VCs really look at market sizes, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, if you said it's a massive market, you will find that a lot more VCs are willing to take, take a risk. So I'll give you an example. We have invested in VJite Networks. Yeah. Uh, it's an out-of-home media advertising company. It's an early stage startup, it has no revenues. There's a company called Out of Home Media which has also been funded. There's a company called Ad Impact Media which is funded. So there are about nine companies in this area. Mm-hmm. If VCs were not willing to take risks, why have they all been funded? The reason that they have been funded is that everybody is convinced that if it works, mm-hmm. the market size is huge. Mm-hmm. Okay. So when an entrepreneur is running into multiple vcs or investors having similar questions that tells you that the market size part of it is not clear to the investors
2: mm-hmm.
3: okay um, so innovation within a within a clear large market size will always get funding okay innovation within an unclear market size will have challenges mm-hmm. getting funding okay that is the thing and typically the way to tackle that situation is there are angel investors who typically tend to be specialized in verticals, mm-hmm. right? So I'll give you an example. Ram Sriram, who's invested in Clear Trip. I yes. think he's an investor in podcast. What is that company called? It's a big podcasting company. Okay. Kleiner, Perkins, and Ram have invested in this company, wow. uh, which is a podcasting company. Uh, so, so he's a guy to go and talk to okay. and try to figure out and if he's also concerned, that means mm-hmm. there is maybe a serious market sizing issue. And it comes back to the fact that how many people will be able to afford iPods in the next four, or five years, how many iPods will be there, what will be their delivery, so a lot of, yeah, yeah, yeah. so let's not take a particular example, but yes. typically it's based on, so the best approach in such situations is to actually raise money from engines. Mm-hmm. And then later on, once the the product development is further along, there are some initial uh, you know, uh, there's, there's some initial evidence of consumer adoption, then you'll get a pretty high valuation as well from the VC because the VCs are taking less risk. That's so okay.
1: that's, that's typically the way it works. What's your take on all these? Uh, Web 2.0 is something which is uh, a rage outside. Yeah. And uh, there are for social networking sites, yeah, if you were to yeah, see, yeah. Uh, we have one and then there are 20 replicas. Yeah. Uh, do you think, uh, I mean, personally, we are not a fan of. Uh, For example, social networking, where there is a community, all right, but it leaves it at that. But then still venture capitalists capitalists are investing. Not in
3: India. Not in India. In fact, if you look at it, last uh, year, there were about 10 or 12 uh, startups. Uh Uh, But as far as I know, maybe one has gotten funding and they've made the rounds of all the VCs. And the reason is the same. The Uh question is lack of clarity of, in this case, not as much market sizing, but whether the market is ready for something like that. That said, around compelling uh, internet applications which people want to use anyway, whether it is online, ticketing, all of that, you can always include an element of social networking, always Mm -hmm. include an element of community building. Um, So in the US, people have been able to have standalone sites which have started in the social networking uh, kind of genre and then are now moving down into e-commerce and all of that, Mm right? In India, I believe it should be the other way around. Get the basic product application okay. utilitarian application going, uh-huh. and then upsell the social networking piece. So the
1: social networking should be the byproduct of the main uh, from the main which utility. Product yes, is. Yes, okay. yes.
3: That's my view. Now, in three to five years, this will change. I mean, as I just read yesterday, Mr. Moran is pushing free broadband, and mm-hmm. target is nine million broadband users by end of 2007. If broadband picks up, Mm -hmm. I would say broadband picks up, especially at home penetration, Mm. then I believe social networking has potential, Because you think about the fact that social networking in a lot of things is a very private uh, experience from your perspective. Although Mm. you are sharing everything about you,
2: Mm.
3: but you don't want to be in a public environment doing that. So if Mm -hmm. you're in a cyber cafe, it's an issue. So I think as at home broadband penetration picks up then the potential for these applications is
2: much more.
0: But have you ever thought that you have uh, someone pitched something to you and um, you turned it down and uh, later on you got a feeling that shit I just missed it you know. That
3: not yet a... not yet. but I'm sure it will happen unfortunately I wish it would never happen but mm-hmm. uh, I'm sure it will happen and I think that what happens is see in consumer businesses where, where, which are growth stage that's less likely to happen because mm-hmm. if there is adoption and all of that then um, then you know we'll uh, we'll likely be interested as well. I have turned down two or three deals in the last six to eight months, which have been done by other VCs, okay. mm. and we had the opportunity to do it instead of those VCs. We just decided not to do it. And the jury's out. We'll see in a year, or two, uh, you know, who was right, right. Uh, and and then we'll find out. I hope I don't regret it, but I would be uh, fooling myself if I believe that over the next. Decade in a career like this, uh-huh. there won't be mistakes. Uh, if you look at some of the you know big successes, like I think Skype, for example, yeah. did not get funding from anybody, and then mm. DFJ decided to invest and yeah. made like billions of dollars out of it. Mm. Right? So these breakout technology plays, it's very easy to miss because mm. if you do it with a very analytical mind mm-hmm. and over apply logic, okay. then so it won't succeed. Yeah, I mean it, Skype. You are going to go up against AT&T all, and all the all behemoths, and your, you think you guys BVL. based in Estonia have a chance of winning? Hmm. It's a low likelihood, but they have succeeded. Yeah,
0: and now they are taking on the TV networks. No juice. Juice, yeah, yeah. yeah. juice. Yeah. So um, and that's going pretty well. I heard. So they were. See, they have an
3: interesting philosophy, which is they take very large markets and disrupt them with innovation. They did that with Kaza music, then they have done it with telephony, with Skype. Now they are doing it with uh, with television.
1: (laughs) Uh, Again, I mean, when these uh, when these budding entrepreneurs or experienced people who come to you to pitch, and you have five minutes, you give them say five minutes or thirty minutes. What is it that uh, I hope this is not a Miss India kind of a question that. It's like we've heard that in the first few minutes the VC knows whether or not I'm going to invest in this uh, promoter or in this idea. What is it that you look for?
3: So I think it's uh, there. Might, there may be there may be some VCs who probably figure it out that quickly. I think as far as I'm concerned, the no is very quick, okay. uh, but the yes takes a very long time. Mm. Uh, so typically, I would say. If it's a no, I probably wouldn't even be meeting the person before knowing that it's a no. It's a combination of reading their presentation, potentially having a phone call, that you know that you know this doesn't make sense. Uh, let's say that filters out 90% of the stuff that comes in, right. maybe 80%. Then you have 20% left, then, then you take 20% of them, you do meetings. And within that, again, 50 to 60% of the no is very quick. You just mm-hmm. know. Okay. And, and the reason you know it is…
0: Um, just not comfortable, just not getting it. Uh, I think it's more the…
3: More, the uh, more No, I think it's more the… Te- if, if we have taken a meeting, that means we are intrigued about the size of the market opportunity. All right. So that means the market opportunity is not something that's leading us to know. Then it's probably the team. Okay. Uh, it's the team's articulation of the market opportunity or their uh, ab- ability to articulate the right strategy to tap into the market opportunity. That would lead to a very quick no, but a yes would take a long time beyond that, uh, which would mean that the team makes sense. We are intrigued about the opportunity. Then we would start doing a diligence, trying to figure out if we are right about the opportunity. Trying to get um, you know reference checks done on the team to see if they are you know look at their track record. Then Mm -hmm. it takes time.
0: The, is the VC community very secretive and competitive mm-hmm. within themselves?
3: Or, uh, I think they're very collaborative you, actually. Okay. You share
0: data?
3: Either? We don't share data because you don't want to compromise confidentiality of the companies and stuff. But you often meet and look, if, if it's a deal that I'm looking at, which I don't want to have any other investor participate in, mm-hmm. then obviously I'm going to be very secretive. But as a industry, they're actually very collaborative. I'm going tonight for a dinner where I think... Uh, Nine out of the ten, uh, you know, meaningful DCs are going to be there together, and it's one of their, uh, It's actually at the house of one of those guys, so it's it's actually a reasonably collaborative. Uh, um, I hate to uh, you know compare it to politics, but they say right there are no uh, permanent friends or right. enemies, no, no, right? no. It's, It is it is similar because you end up working. Uh, first of all, there are no enemies. Okay, uh, but in, there are a lot of acquaintances, and some of them they are personal friends. Um, it is collaborative. At the same time, everybody is an adult. They recognize that ultimately, if there is one company looking, which is a very promising, and it's looking for investment from three or four VCs, mm-hmm. it's not like all three or four will call each other and split the deal. Because, uh-huh. uh, and it's because we have
0: a pretty good relationship. Yeah. Okay, so I have a very light uh, question, if you will. What is the most annoying thing uh, that you think entrepreneurs do? To you know, when they want to talk to you. Continuously emailing you and uh, is calling you on the cell phone considered to be a you know very a, a total no-no or. See, I've been
3: an entrepreneur, so uh, I used to be extremely persistent when I was an entrepreneur. I used to email VCs and follow up. And uh, as far as I'm concerned, I don't want to be politically correct, but I don't know if I have found something really annoying. I guess the most so in terms of access. Absolutely not. You've seen how I responded to you guys. Right. I respond to every email that comes to me. Okay. For sure. And typically the response time is less than 48 hours. Mm-hmm. right? So that's a certain standard I've set for myself. On the flip side, I never answer my mobile phone, never. Um, so my mobile phone always goes to voicemail unless I recognize the number and I know the person or whatever. Because on the one hand I'm completely unresponsive on mobile but I'm super responsive on email. Mm-hmm. Right? So, access is not an issue, our email address is published on the website, phone number is published on the website, all of that. I think the only annoying thing probably that uh, I see which you can interpret either as uh, passion or, or potentially something that's uh, annoying is when entrepreneurs are just not willing to listen.
2: Okay.
3: Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we are not, we are not, VCs are typically not there to summarize, but at the same time VCS by virtue of having seen a number of op- and I'm learning this myself because I haven't been a VC for very long there is a certain collective wisdom mm. in the in the group mm. because they have seen a lot of opportunities they've seen what works what doesn't work and when one is an entrepreneur and going to a VC and the VC says look this doesn't make sense for these 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 reasons uh, but maybe this other way it would work I think it's important to listen and 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 you know, kind of factor in that feedback and say, and even at that time, decide whether it may still be that that you are so passionate about the idea that. It, that's. So I think that's the only thing. I won't call it annoying. I think it's more first-time entrepreneurs mm-hmm. have that as a. It's a character trait. I had that okay. as a character trait um, because it also comes with the, uh, the the good side of it is, which is they're extremely passionate about what they believe, right? And I would rather take a person who is very passionate about what they believe in and, and says that I will prove you wrong in, in what yes. you are saying than somebody who is not passionate and is opportunistic and is willing to change his mind at every time he gets a different feedback. Right. But the right answer is actually somewhere in between. Hmm. Right,
1: so. so it's all art, there's no science to this. <laughs> Absolutely <not. laughs> oh, well, that was Well to- it was good talking
0: to you, uh, on that note I think we have exhausted our questions finally. Uh, at least, um, yeah, on pe- so, yeah on paper, but uh, that's about it. Thanks for uh, taking all the time and talking to us. Uh, my pleasure, my pleasure. I think it was a very interesting discussion.
3: So thank you for taking the time. Thanks, Thanks a lot. Bye okay, guys. Cheers.
1: Bye bye.